You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2-0. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi there, everyone. I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. We have a special, special guy on this week. He was my double play combination partner for six years in the Bronx, and uh, uh, everybody calls him Willie Randolph. I call him Padna, and we are so excited to, to have him on the show today. With me right now, we have Al Santaseri. Hey, Bucky. Hi, buddy. And John Schwartz. What's going on, guys? Oh, we were looking forward to talking to this guy. I've been waiting for him for a long time. I've been looking forward to doing a good infield episode with you for a while, Bucky, because obviously we've talked so much about the home run already, and not to say we won't talk about it more, but, you know, before, <laughs> if you will, that moment, you were pretty well known for your glove. So it'd be nice to hear from your double play partner. Yes, it will. We we played together for six years, and he was pretty smooth over there. And uh, he was so easy to play with, and uh, we had a lot of great years together. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him. Well, why don't we go right to it then? Let's get Willie on the phone. Let's get him on the phone. Hey, Willie, welcome to the show, man. My sidekicks are uh, John and Al, and uh, we're really glad to have you on to talk a little bit of baseball. Oh, great. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. What's up, Willie? Same here. All right. I was uh, talking to them a little bit before the show, and I was looking at your career, and sometimes things jump out at you, you know, and uh, we have a, a similar similar career. You played longer than I did, but we, mm-hmm. we played together for six years, and I got to say right off the bat that you were the best second baseman I ever played with, but, you know, we, we played you. in 77, 78. You missed the 78 World Series. I missed mm-hmm. the 81 World Series. Mm-hmm. You played, you coached, you managed – and as a good a defensive player as you were, I didn't know you'd never won a gold glove, and neither did I. You got beat out by Lou Whitaker and Frank White, and I got beat out by Belanger and Alan Trammell. That's right. Unbelievable, man. That was one of the things that really – that because, you know, we took a lot of pride in our defense, Bucky. You know that. And, uh, uh, you know, all, all six all-star games, a lot of world championships were, were great, but I really took a lot of pride in my defense. So I was really disappointed that I never got at least one gold glove. And I know there were years statistically – where I was at the top of the, the list, you know, with double plays, assists, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, uh, you know, I think that not to make excuses, but again, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker were excellent together. And, and you remember how bad Yankee Stadium was, Bucky? They, that was a really a, a bad field, especially on the right side. We had that little incline going towards the outfield where they pitched it for the water. So I got a lot of balls that ate me up. So uh, my errors were not high, but I thought I made some errors that kind of ate me up. But I always had in the back of my mind feeling like, you know, I wish I would have won at least one gold glove. 
Yeah, you know, when I came over to New York, when I got traded over in 77, you know, I played in Chicago and it had AstroTurf, but then the turf, it came off on the dirt. But, you know, mm-hmm. the, the groundskeeper in Chicago was phenomenal. He, oh, he's uh, the bastard. Yeah. So when I came mm-hmm. over, I remember the first game I played uh, opening day, I noticed the, the, the crown and it sloped because of the football. You know, they still played football there for a while. And right. so the first ball that was hit, I'll never laugh, I keep chuckling at myself and I talk about it, was somebody hit a ground ball in the hole and I dove at it and Nettles caught it, scooped it up and was throwing the first and I got up and I was so embarrassed. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this guy's got some kind of range and I'm, I'm diving at a ball. But, uh, you know, I had a lot of trouble to, for the first month throwing because when I went in the hole, I was always throwing like uphill. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Out, like that little crown and thank god snatcher was over there and dug him out but yeah, uh, he, you're right you know that feel was was tough yeah yeah snatcher he saved us a lot but you're right it was the way the drainage was for some reason uh, it was pitched towards the outfield but you know for the water to drain down they had to put it on a slant so it, it were times where i literally you know if you if i was on the on the back of the of, of the uh, of the infield you know, if you were in at, at in the dugout, you couldn't even see the bottom of my feet because it was on a, such an incline. But every time a ball would be hit as a roller, a topspin roller, it would pick up topspin. And I, that's why I kind of adopted that style of kind of, you really can't see me doing it, but I had kind of that little short hop style because the ball would always come up on me. So I just learned how to, to anticipate that, have soft hands, and keep the ball in front of me. But again, it was just one of those things where back in the day, they didn't have the really good drainage systems back then in order to 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 pitch the water off they had to put it like that but you're right i mean it, uh, the left side wasn't as bad as the right side but the right side because that's where the drainage was the right center field that's where it pitched mostly i'm curious from both of your perspectives you know what makes a great double play partner mm, interesting you know i don't know if you guys know this but you know i played 13 years with the yankees and i think that there was a number at one time that said I played with 36 different shortstops. Now, now some of those guys had a cup of coffee now, okay? Because you know the, the Columbus Shuttle was always running around. So whether it was Bobby Meacham or Andre Robinson or Toby Hera, there was a lot of guys that that went up and down, you know, with the Yankees. So I actually all these I played there, I had to adjust to all these different guys. The, the only time that I really felt comfortable was when Bucky came over. And, and it, it, I always told people that he was the best shortstop that I ever played with because we had this chemistry together. And it was just that we were just, I think for me, Bucky, very fundamentally sound. So it, it wasn't like we worked a lot of time together working on our pivot. We just knew where, where each other was going to be, and we were just very fundamentally sound. So I could see the ball come out of your hand. You knew where I wanted it. So I, and, and I, in my case, I was always wanting to throw the ball over the bag so I can give my guy a chance to make the double play. So the fact that we played together a long time made it easier because we got accustomed to each other. And when you win world championships, that to me is, 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 is the, the, the barometer of how good you are with your double play partners. So I just think we had a nice chemistry together. We kind of had that feeling for our rhythm and we were very fundamentally sound. I, I totally agree. You know, when I came over from Chicago, I was like, Willie, you know, I played with a bunch of guys at second base, you know, from George Orta to Jerry Harrison to mm-hmm. just, just a whole bunch of guys. So when I got over, you know, and, you know, the one thing that, that, that I was always taught by Al Monchek, you know, is he says the one thing you don't want to do is put pressure on the second baseman by saying you're going to throw the ball here. You know, right. we weren't taught like that. He said just just – the second baseman just throw the ball up so he can see it, and you tell the second baseman just throw the ball up, and you'll make the adjustment. 
And so when we came over, when I came over, it was easy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you were, you were schooled by Bill Mazeroski. I heard you talk a, a lot about him. He taught you how to, you know, use your footwork around the bag. So when mm-hmm. you can do that, do that. And the one thing I always said about Willie that made him so good was he had a shortstop arm at second base, yeah. you know, because yeah. some of the guys that I played with, you know, they had to rely on their quickness of getting rid of the ball. But Willie, mm-hmm. you know, had that shortstop arm, so he could stay in there a little bit longer and then turn the ball loose and, you know, always turn the ball over as a double play. That, that's an excellent point, Bucky. It's an excellent point because, again, I, and I always made it easy for my shortstop by saying, listen, like you say, don't, you don't have to be, you don't have to lead me, you don't have to be in the back of the base, just play catch. Just throw the ball at my chest, you know, right over the bag. And like you said, Bucky, I had quick feet and I had a really strong arm because I signed as a shortstop out of high school, actually. So I've always, for my size, had a really strong arm. So I always felt comfortable. Like once I got the ball in my hand, I could pivot and I would put something on it. And like you said, the snatcher saved us a lot of, a lot of balls in the dirt. But, um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that because I think that a lot of people didn't give me credit for my arm, but I always felt I had a good shortstop's arm. Willie, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you said, uh, you played shortstop obviously before, you know, you, you were in the, in the pros and in the majors and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like how did the transition to second happen? Like how, how did that kind of come about? I guess. It it was like, I'd been playing there all my life. I signed out of high school as a shortstop. My first year or so I played, uh, I think I just went to rookie ball and part of the instruction league. And I played a little shortstop at the time. I don't know if you remember this guy, Bucky, but it was a shortstop, big, big California kid named Dwayne Peltier. Remember that name, Dwayne Peltier? For the Pirates? No, I don't, I don't really yeah, remember I don't think him. He remember. Now, he might have got a cup of coffee, but he never really made it. But he signed at the same year I signed. And I remember uh, Johnny Lippon, the manager at the time, uh, coming over to me and saying, Willie, you know, have you ever played second base? And I go, well, not really. You know, I play a little bit everywhere, you know, in the sand lots, but uh, mostly shortstop. He says, well, why don't you just get a glove and go over second base? We'll see how you look over there, work with you a little bit and see how you feel over there, you know. And that's because Dwayne Peltier was a number one pick. So they were going to move me. I signed for, what, five grand? <laughs> and I thought I was rich, but yes, I signed for <laughs> five too. grand. I was like, oh, I'm rich. <laughs> I got 12. I thought I was rich. <laughs> exactly, man. So, um, so I went over to second base, guys, and, and, and it just I just adapted well. Again, going back to quick feet, good pivot, quick arm, strong arm, it just felt like it, I was made to play second. So it wasn't like, you know, I had to really um, get comfortable there. Again, you had guys like Mazeroski around. You had Bernie Stennett. Uh, I, I remember the great Gene Baker. Gene Baker was in the legal leagues back in the day, an old school right. pirate guy who was in constructional league. He taught me how to turn it up. Remember Eddie Napoleon? Remember Nappy? Eddie Napoleon? Yes. yes, Eddie, yes. great, great, great infield coach. Uh, Chuck Cartier, Chuck Cartier, great, great uh, infield coach. Yep. yep. So yep. all these guys kind of molded me and taught me a lot of the stuff that I had to learn at second base. And so really it's kind of weird that uh, when you look at me at second base, you would have thought that I played during my life, but I actually just transferred from short to second out of necessity. And I'm glad I did because I really adapted well to the position. I didn't mind the contact. You know, I played a little football in high school. So even though a lot of guys would be intimidated turning double play, I enjoyed the contact. I was making the guy get down and just get over top of him. Yeah, and uh, speaking of contact, actually, I was just looking at the video last night of when uh, Hal McRae took you out in '77. Oh. oh my God! You know he got he he got me the same way, Willie. Uh, we were playing yeah. in Chicago, and um, I was playing behind second base, and John Mayberry uh-huh. hit a high bounding ball on the turf. Uh-huh. I got it, stepped on the bag, and McRae ran out of the baseline. I yeah. threw the ball at first, and the next thing I know, I'm back, my hat, my glove, I'm trying. Yeah. I got up, and I took. I, I went to take a swing at him, and Ron Luciano yeah. grabbed me. 
But I yeah. mean, he ran out of baseline. But last night I was looking at, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You know, it was like a football block, and how far he knocked you back. It, it was it was a rolling body block. That's exactly what it was. So the pop up slide, he rolled, and um, again, going back to my football days, that really looked nasty. And and today he would have been suspended for a month. Probably if he did that today. <laughs> oh yeah. Do any protect players today? But Bucky, we and we anticipated that kind of play. We played against some really tough cats, Don Baylor, Kirk Gibson. Yeah. I mean, I can just go up and down the line with guys who Reggie Jackson came in hard. Uh, we, Amos Otis, we knew that, that if we didn't protect ourselves or if you didn't give me the ball quickly, that, that we were going to get upset. But I, again, I was able to anticipate it because we, we didn't take it for granted. We assumed that we were going to get taken out because that was the norm. Nowadays, guys get into that false sense of security where I think a lot of guys get hurt because they don't they don't even get up in the air, Bucky. You see, they just kind of no. pivot and they watch the play. And I'm saying, son, no, son, you got to get up off the ground. If he hits you while you're stationary, you can break a knee or blow out an ACL. So I always had this thing of every time I threw the ball, even though I wasn't under pressure, I would get up in the air just in case he hit me. I would roll body block. So when you look at that play, and it's so funny you mentioned that play, guys, because in spring training at Red Gardner, we got out there one morning just kind of hanging out. And, and the same thing. He said, Willie, I saw this thing on YouTube, man. Wow, this, were you okay when, 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 when McCraig went after you? And I looked at him like, no, I was fine. I didn't really didn't feel it. If you, if you remember the play, I jumped right up. Because Patek around in third was going home. And my main concern right. was to pick up the ball and throw the ball home because that was a big run. So I remember Billy coming out there, and I'm arguing with the umpire, but I did not even feel it because I got off the ground and got in the air, and I was used to, to being, being flipped or whatever because that was the norm. So uh, it looked really bad, and, and I ended up in, in short left field. But, Bucky, we, that's the way we played. You know that's the way we went after it. And so uh, we just assumed that if you're going to come after me, I'm going to low bridge you. I, I hit a lot of guys on the top of the helmet. I'm going to hit a few guys between the eyes. Hal McCray never came close to me after that. After that play, Bucky, every time that he was on first base, I'd look at you. I'd go, Bucky, give it to me. Give it to me, brother. Yep. Okay? Yep. And as soon as he hit the ball to you or Nettles, when I got the ball, McCray was off in the right. He peeled off the right field because he knew I was going to get him. He knew it. So every time he didn't even yeah. try to come after me. And he got a little older later on, so he wasn't as quick as he was early in his career. But every time I came around on a double play, I was looking to hit him right between the eyes, and he would peel <laughs> off into right field every time. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, after after that play, you know, we went in the dugout and everybody was like ticked off. And I remember Nettle yeah. says, we might we might lose this playoff, guys, but let's we're going to kill them now. And I don't know if they turned a double play after that. And that's when they got in the, the melee at third base when uh, Brett slid in over there. But yeah. we had some tough guys. We had some tough guys, man. And you stir them up, boy. They got tough. And if you remember, Bucky, the next day we went to Kansas City. We almost got into a fight on the cage. Because Cliff Johnson approached Hal, Hal McCray about that play. We were stretching exactly. around the cage. I don't, know, I don't know if you remember this. We were stretching around the cage, and we were just kind of, you know, and that's the first time teams started really stretching as a group before the game or whatever. So we were getting loose. They were taking batting practice. Cliff Johnson just got up and walked over to Hal McCray and goes, Hal, you know, I don't appreciate you trying to hurt my boy Willie. And at the time, Hal thought he was kind of half-joking, but Cliff wasn't smiling. 
And he went, no, 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 really. He pointed him and he said, you know, you mess with my money. You know what I'm saying, Bucky? Like, you effing with my <laughs> yeah. money, you know? Yeah. And then, then right. all of a sudden, guys started getting up. We started crap. And that the security that kind of separates a little bit. I don't know if you remember that, but we almost yep. got into a brawl doing batting practice over that play because, you know, back then we protected each other. And that World Series money was huge. So if you were trying to hurt one of my guys, they say, hey, man, you effing my money. And uh, I don't play that, you know? <laughs> That was the Yankee way. I, I remember when I came over there, you know, Munson and those guys, you know, I yeah. mean, if you screwed up, the, Billy really never said much. Everybody always say, well, what did Billy say to you if you did something wrong? He really never said much, you know. The players no. said it, you know. I mean, right. Nettles would get on you. He'd say something kind of sarcastic, but you got it. And yeah. Thurman, I mean, Thurman had no qualms about, you know, saying something. All Thurman had to do was shoot you a look. He was the captain, and you knew where he was coming from. And we had Pinella was on that team. We had so many great veterans who knew how to play the game. And again, if you were in the whirlpool too long, they'd shoot you a look. If you took too many swings in the batting cage, they'd shoot you a look. And you knew without even saying anything that, hey, man, these are the guys that have been there, so you better get get it, get in order. But um, but you're right about that, Bucky. Those guys uh, understood, you know, that this is the Yankee way. We used to fight with the Red Sox, you know, before you came there in 76. Remember the big fight at home plate between yep. Carlton Fisk and, and Lou yep. Pinella? That was a huge yep. brawl. That's when, that's when Bill Lee... That is sep- it's shoulder separated when Otto Velez slam dunked him and, and tore up his shoulder. Probably ended his career in a lot of ways, people think. But we used to fight with every, the Milwaukee, we, we fought with the, with the, with the Orioles uh, at times, you know, Kansas City. So that was the way we played back in the day, man. I loved it. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, an important aspect of this then right now, which is what happened a couple, I guess it's last week, between the A's and the Astros. Guys, if, if, if you had a guy on your team who really instigated the fight in the way that Alex Centrone did and then conveniently found his way to the back of the pile throughout that entire thing, how would you guys react in the clubhouse to something like that? You know, the bus rides where they would get you. I mean, yeah. you know, when we got on the bus after the game, if you screwed up or something happened, it, it, the bus ride would start off a little bit, and then our boy Lou or Catfish would go at it. And then from oh, there, yeah. it, would, it, it would start, you know. And, and really, it was funny because, you know, I always say, you were kind of quiet, Chambliss mm-hmm. was quiet, Roy White mm-hmm. and, and myself, but once the bus started going and guys started chirping, you know, they would start and then they would go after a guy, hey, Willie, you know, and then <laughs> Willie would, yeah. he always had great comebacks, Willie, you know, but Lou yeah. and, and Catfish would instigate it, but they would kind of, you know, they would kind of say things in that bus ride that you would get, you know, where you'd say, hmm, you know, I, un- I understand, it, 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 but they would get on you. No doubt. And if you had thin, if you had thin skin, you, you couldn't play on those teams. I mean, you, you couldn't take the heat. And a lot of it was good natured, but it was a, there was a reason behind it. It was, again, we were looking out for each other. You know, if, if we didn't play the game right, we would call each other out. But we didn't really take it personally. Now, some guys did. Some guys took it a little personal. But if you were going to be on a Yankee team and we expected you to be accountable and win, but they were classic bus rides because they would start out by getting on guys, Bucky, but then they would yeah. uh, get into a good nature back and forth with Catfish and Lou and, and, and Nettles would throw in his one-liners and, and Mickey Rivers, and, and it was hilarious. I wish we had video or we had cell phones back then we could make a mint bucky on on the sound bites man it was hilarious <laughs> i'm telling you, I'll tell like you a roast. It, if we had youtube <laughs> back then we would be you know the the number one show of all time oh but you'd also be totally unemployable probably oh no <laughs> doubt okay. but who cares I mean, they would love it yeah. a little x-rated at times you know but uh r-rated yeah. but man it, but it was fun we kept each other loose 
uh, we, you know, we, we didn't take each other really seriously as far as, you know, okay, listen, you made an error as part of it, but if you, you know, embarrassed yourself a little bit or you embarrassed the team, oh, man, you wouldn't live it down for weeks, man. <laughs> really, how did, how did those teams differ, the culture or the chemistry of those teams, you know, and I'm sure it's, it's quite a bit, but differ from the teams you coached in the late 90s with the Yankees, you know, two decades later? How different was the, the culture, the bus rides, the chemistry? <laughs> Oh no! Totally different. No, no, no. After the probably the probably the mid early nineties, a lot of stuff kind of went away. The guys become a little more corporate, a little more you know into their own thing. Uh, yeah, a few guys getting on each other a little bit. They would hang out, play cards, do things like that. But but I think a lot of those guys could not have played back when Bucky and I played because again, it goes back to being a little thin skinned. You know, just being sensitive about stuff. You know, it was just a different breed, guys. I, it, it's hard to not hard to explain, but but it's it just that you didn't do that. Guys would complain to their agents. You know, they they, they didn't they didn't understand that it was all part of of a brotherhood, and we can get on each other, go out and have a beer, have fun, laugh at each other. Oh, I I I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, uh, I I think. The guys, I don't know, because you've been, you know, you go to spring training with these guys now. And, right. and I did start to see a little bit of a change, you know, when I got fired by the Yankees and I went over to the Cardinals, you know, there was there was a little bit, because we had Guerrero and some guys, you know, that would get on, you know, and tease guys and things like that, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, like you said, later on, it, it wasn't quite as much as that. You know, the one guy that I coached that I thought would have been really tremendous in our area was uh, Will Clark. I loved him. I mean, he was yeah. an old school guy that would get on guys, you know. He'd mm-hmm. tell you to run the ball out and stuff like that. I loved the way he played, yeah. You played 18 years, and then you you went into uh, you went into coaching. You know, you, you mm-hmm. coached 11 years with the Yankees, and you, you got a chance to be on some world championship teams. Actually, you beat me and my Texas team, you know, 96, 98, yeah. 99, dad gummit. Yeah. You know, I thought we had pretty good teams. You had some good teams, too. Yeah, you had some really yeah. good teams back then, too. But, you know, your transition to coaching, did, did, did you like coaching? I mean, did, was it something that you really wanted to do after you retired? Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I did. I, I went into the front office for a quick minute uh, with, with Gene Michaels, just about a half a year. And uh, cause I, I, I retired in 92. I, I went aboard and right before the All-Star break, kind of working with Gene Michaels, just helping out a little bit, just seeing what I would like in the front office. And then Mr. Steinbrenner came to me at the end of 93 and said, you know, what do you want to do? I said, well, I just came off my, my playing career. I, I kind of felt like I could have played another year or so if I wanted to play maybe more of a part-time role. But I, my knees were starting to wear on me a little bit, and I didn't, I wasn't accustomed to not playing every day. So I said, you know what, let me just step away. So I had I, I, I that, that, that will to get back on the field and teach and learn and, and grow. And I had aspirations of maybe managing, but I, but coaching was intriguing to me because I just love players. I love teaching, you know, being at home again, I continue to, to be a part of a great situation with the Yankees. So I, I did have that, that, that urge to, to coach. So I told Mr. Steinbrenner, I would love to get into coaching. I never, ever coached third base in my life. Obviously Trey Hillman, was an instructional league manager at the time, and I went down to instructional league right after the season, and I and I did about two months of just coaching third base. A lot tougher than it looked for me. I I didn't realize it was that tough. It took me a while. I almost got a few guys killed going home, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I learned to to get the rhythm of it down. And then I you know and after that, Bucky, it was just a matter of me uh, convincing Buck Showalter, who was the manager in '95, that I was 
his guy, that I would be loyal to him because I, I was so uncomfortable with back in the day, Bucky, you know, managers could kind of pick their coaches, you know, and yeah, I didn't want Bucky yeah. to feel like I was being pushed on him. Mr. Steinman had believed in me and he said, I want you to do this if you want to do it. But I had to get the blessings from Buck Showalter before I, I accepted the job. I started to get feel more comfortable. I loved working with guys like Jeter and Bernie Williams and all those cats. So uh, I love coaching. I, I really look forward to it. And then I got the bug for managing later on, of course. You you had a, a great young player coming up to play shortstop, and Derek Jeter. You know, and <laughs> was was he receptive to you as far as you know your teaching styles and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, he was. You know, Derek is a worker. You know, he always was out there every day taking his ground balls. You could tell, Bucky that he had it. He had it. You know, it kind of reminded me of a young Don Mattingly. You know, you, you can tell when guys had it, and 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 he yeah. had that. He was very confident. You know, he's that. Athletic. That's what I loved about him because he made a lot of errors coming out of AAA. I mean, you know, he wasn't that polished and, and he was raw. And I remember telling Mr. Steinbrenner, if you guys don't yo-yo him up and down, if you give me an opportunity to work with this kid, I think he's going to be a decent shortstop because he's a worker. I think he wants to be best. And, um, you know, just don't mess with his head by, you know, every time he makes a couple of errors in a tough spot, sending him back to AAA. That, that's not going to work. So, he learned to grow. He kept working his butt off, but he was very receptive. I mean, uh, he was never late. He was always there working hard. And uh, and he was a guy that, going back to what we were saying about being thin-skinned, you, know, you can get on him a little bit. If he was getting a little lax with his feet or getting a little careless on certain ground balls, on routine ground balls, I, I would get on his a little bit, and, and, and he responded to that. So I always respected the fact that, you know, he wanted to be coached, and he didn't mind if, if you were hard on him at times, and, and he made my job a lot easier. And I'm so proud of him because he, no one knew he was going to be a Hall of Famer, but uh, you could tell that he was a winner. You know, I remember being uh, kind of watching you, Willie, from afar, having you know having worked with you for quite a few years when you were on our coaching staff, and then seeing you with the Mets. And it's always weird. It was it was years where we were, we were rooting for the Mets because we had respect for you and we knew what what type of job you were doing there. We didn't really want mm-hmm. the Mets to win the World Series if we weren't, <laughs> of course. But um, you know, but it was always fun to you know to kind of see you there and see what you had ascended to, you know, as quickly as you did, and and obviously came pretty close uh, to getting to the World Series. How much pride, though, do you have in, in having been, you know, the manager of the New York Mets and managed in the Big Apple, uh, oh, you know, when you look back on that time? Great question. And, and really just uh, when, when I think about, because I, I believe in, you know, dreaming. You know, as a young kid, yeah. I grew up in New York. And I remember dreaming about, and I was more of a Mets fan as a kid. And people don't realize that because they, they associate me with the Yankees. Yeah, no, really, I do I that. Because I, 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 I grew up a National League fan. I was really intrigued by the National League game. Uh, very aggressive. I the speed. I was a big Roberto Clemente fan. You know, uh, I love Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and all those cats. So, uh, for me, when the Mets won in 1969, we were like dancing in the streets. We never thought they would beat the mighty Orioles. I mean, the Mets were like the underdog. So I remember just being totally, totally just smitten with the whole thing. Like, oh, I cannot believe we won a championship. And I live a little closer to, to Shea Stadium because I grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I would take the subway and uh, my boys and I would get on the subway train. We would sneak on the train <laughs> and we would go to Shea Stadium. And so that's really how I started to really love the National League. You know, I, it, it's really weird for me because when you come full circle, 
and you look up and you go, wait a minute, I'm actually a kid growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I get a chance to manage the team that I actually rooted for and almost get to World Series. And then, you know, when you, when you also come full circle, you talk about the Yankees being captain of the team, playing for one of the most storied franchises in, in, in history of, of sports. And so it, it was to me, it was just kind of like one of those things where I was living my dream, but I felt so blessed. And, and I felt so good about the opportunity to be able to live that kind of life, to do it at home in front of my family and my friends and all the guys that, that I went to school with it was really an honor and, and a privilege. Well, you step back, like I, I look back over, you know, when I went down and, and learned to manage, you know, Dick Hauser, you know, was the guy that really talked me into going down. He said, you got to go down there and learn. He says, learn to handle the press, learn to, uh-huh. you know, run a game. And, and I had been a teacher my whole life as a, at the baseball school, but I was really only worried about more of the infielders and then all of a sudden you take over managing and you got to know outfield and pitching mm-hmm. and I remember the first game I managed Mike Torres was pitching against us in Miami and uh you know my pitching coach comes to me in the seventh inning he goes Bill Mamoquette goes you're going to get somebody up and I went oh oh <laughs> you know I, I was so <laughs> locked in on the game that I forgot you know that I needed to get a pitcher up you know and those are things you kind of forget about you know when when you're managing and you learn to do that you know yes. uh, you learn to now a pitching staff you know running the game and doing this and doing that but the thing I was going to ask you about you know being in the American League, playing in the National League, managing in the National League. The National League game, when I went over to coach for Torrey in 91, I was fascinated by it. It was a, just mm-hmm. a, a faster game. You know, the strategy was different. And how long did it take you to really get a feel of the, st- the strategy of the double switching and all that stuff as a manager? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you're right, Bucky. It took me a while to kind of just, again, stay ahead. Because as a coach sometimes, you know, you used to always reacting to, you know, every play. But as a manager, mm-hmm. you got to let that go. You got to really, if a guy boots a ball or a guy gives up a home run or a big hit, you can't stew on that. You can't let that linger. So I, I got caught like you did at times being a little bit behind because, you know, I was still pissed off at, at the, the play before. But as a manager, you have to have a short memory, man. You got to throw that out and always remember, you got to stay a play ahead all the time. You always got to think about what's happening next with your staff, you know, what, what strategy you're going to use. You know, I had great coaches on my bench who really kind of kept me on my toes when it came to that, but I really enjoyed the National League game. I, I watched it as a kid growing up. You know, even when I was in the American League, I kind of studied it and watched it. And because that to me was pure baseball, you know, you know, when to double switch, you know, when to, uh, you know, get your pitcher ready. When you need to pitch it, that's a tough call when you get to mm-hmm. the fifth, sixth inning where the guy's throwing the ball well, when you're down by one or two and you got, you got to get somebody going, you got to score some runs. If you're not, if you're struggling offensively, those were the parts of the game that I really, really enjoyed. The DH is fine, but I, I prefer you have one way or the other. Now, I know right now in baseball, they have the, you know, they, they're just going to just have DH on both sides, but I wish they would adopt it in both leagues so we don't have that difference of interleague play where you got to make that adjustment. But uh, if in a perfect world, for me, I would rather just have to pitch a hit and just have this traditional, you know, baseball where you have to make moves. But, but again, I know the fans like offense. I love offense. So if you're going to do it, do it both ways with, with the DH in both leagues. If not, uh, I prefer just to have it to where, you know, we just do it with, with the pitcher hitting. That, that to me, is, is more like pure baseball. How does the media, in, particularly in New York City, shape your – how did it shape your day, Willie and, and Bucky, when you go from – coaching where you're not really responsible as kind of a voice of the team to, you know, answering questions about how players feel to 
physically to mentally to, you know, you know, keeping a, a positive face <laughs> when you're going through a losing streak. And, you know, I, I, I know, um, you know, it's not always easy, but how does that shape your day and your job, guys? Well, I tell you what, it, it's it's something that uh, you, you got to learn how to do. I mean, yeah. you know, that's one thing that uh, Dix Hauser told me. He says, learn how to deal with the press. And I got to say right here, when I got fired and I went over to coach for Joe Torre in 91 with the Cardinals, he was the best that I've seen as far as handle, handling the press. But, you know, a little bit different than Willie, you know, when, when I took over in 89 with the Yankees, you know, we weren't very good. I took over. And I went. I had four general managers. A lot of people don't understand. I had four general managers in the six months that I wow. I, wow. I managed in, it, <laughs> for the Yankees. And, and, and yeah, I mean, one one guy's telling you're going to do this, and then he's gone. The next guy, you know, I mean, it was like a whirlwind. And but it was not a very good time, you know. But I, like you said, Willie, you dream, your dreams come true, and you play for the Yankees, and you get an opportunity. You know, managing the minor leagues, come up now, manage the team. You're going to take it, and I took it, and um, just like yeah. you. But uh, as far yeah. as you with the New York press, you know, you'd been around it for a long time, so uh, I'm sure you know, uh, you know, you handle it a certain way, also. Yeah, but Bucky, as you know, until you're in that hot seat, you don't know how it is. I mean, I grew up mm-hmm. in New York, so I understood the media. I had a feel. I watched everything go down even before I got the opportunity to to manage so you know you kind of feel like eh, I know the guys I know how I'm gonna handle myself but when you're in that hot seat it's just totally different so I had to adjust uh I had a great PR director and Jay Harwoods I know you guys know Jay but he's one of the best yeah and uh and and what I had to learn to do was first of all tell the truth because if you don't tell the truth in New York yeah. you're in big trouble but 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 I always felt like as long as I was straight and honest with the guys, I always felt like if, if I could just get through the pregame, because to me, one of the toughest jobs of the manager in New York is dealing with the media. It sounds kind of weird, but, you know, the, the easiest time of the day for me when I exhaled was when was 7.05. 7.35 is when I felt like, I'm okay, now I can have fun. <laughs> now I can relax yeah. and enjoy the game. But really, I, I did a, a pregame show. You did the manager show. And you do the post-game show along with hordes of media who uh, no, no of us have your best interest. I understand their job, and, I, and, and we got along great because I knew a lot of these cats personally. But it did, you know, if there was brush fires, make sure you put them out early. And you have to make sure that, that what you say to the media, you try to say to your players first because they read everything, they hear everything. And I got into a, a few hot spots where I didn't get to a player in time and they heard some from the media and then I had to kind of put that brush fire out. So even though I enjoyed my banter with the media, I was pretty successful. So, you know, you had your ups and downs, so it wasn't crazy. But there were times where, you know, it got to be really tough, where the toughest part of my job actually was managing and navigating through the media stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tell you some other things, too, that, you know, um, I learned from talking to other managers. You know, I, yes. I remember I remember talking to Jim Leland and I said, hey, Jim, I said, I noticed you come out with that fungo and you start walking, you walk in the outfield and start talking. I go, why do you do that? And he goes, Bucky, I can go out in the outfield, take my fungo, walk around. He says, I can touch base with every guy. I can yeah. talk to the pitcher the, uh, the night before. And uh-huh. he says, 
actually, I can chew their rear end out and nobody will even know it. The press doesn't even know what I'm doing. He says, and I can say what I got to say. And I walk off and I see how everybody's is mentally and where they're at. And he says, the best thing about it, when you go in that office and you close that door and bring a player in there, everybody knows that something's going on. And I said, I said, wow. I said, that's something that, you know, that I never thought about, you know, so, you know, learning little techniques that other guys, you know, talking to other guys also helped be a better coach, be a better manager. But, you know, do do you ever stop and think, Willie, why didn't I ever get another chance? I mean, I know you interviewed for some jobs and stuff like that, but I mean, did you ever stop and think? Because I did, you know, I said, man. You know, I interviewed for some jobs I came close to, but I, I really never got another chance, and uh, and you didn't either. You know, I'm, I'm still to this day a little bit disappointed. Uh, well, a lot disappointed that I didn't get another shot because, again, it goes back to what I said, guys, about as a young manager, I felt I was really growing, you know. I really felt like as being a part of a legacy. Uh, I remember, you know, when I first got the job with the Mets, one of the first people to call me was the great late Buck O'Neill. He was very proud of me. Uh, I remember exactly what he said to me, uh, Frank Robinson. I felt a sense of pride because I was the first African-American manager to manage in New York. And and I didn't take that lightly. I thought that was something really, really profound for me. I felt a sense of pride. And uh, so I really wanted to, to do real well and get off to a good start because I felt like I could be an inspiration to guys like Bo Porter or Damalo Hale or, or anybody coming behind me because there wasn't many, many, many black managers out there. So I, I, I felt like the shot was going to come. So I went to Milwaukee for two years with Maka as the bench coach. I went, to, I, I met again with Show Walter in Baltimore in 2011 uh, as his bench coach. And then I stayed around the game, just kind of not getting a lot of interviews, but still kind of keeping my finger on the pulse of what was going on and just kind of keep my name, my face out there. I did the WBC for a few years and recently did the Olympics. So that's a great question, guys. And, and, I, and I stopped a long time ago trying to figure out why, because, you know, I, don't, I can't come up with any reason why, because, again, I felt like I did a good job. But, you know, the game was starting to evolve a little bit, starting to change a little bit into a lot of the analytics stuff or whatever. And a lot of new general managers were coming into the mix. Now, we know analytics are great, and, and, I, and I'm a, I, I don't mind it at all. And I think what they're doing is, is in a lot of ways is good, but, but the game is not rocket science. It really, we were doing a lot of analytics stuff, Bucky, before – you know, all that stuff came about. They just gave it more of a fancy name, uh, you know, putting different right. names on it. But we did all the scouting reports and all the charts and all the different statistics and stuff. But they took it to another level, a lot of these young kids. And some of these guys are really smart and really good at what they do. But I really can't answer that question for you because, again, uh, I'm not going to hide my disappointment. But but bottom line is that that's just the way things – it could be the timing of it. But I felt like I stayed out there long enough to let everybody know that I still wanted another shot, that I still loved the game and wanted to give back. But it just didn't happen. And there's a lot of guys like that. There's a lot of, a lot of players that don't get a second shot. But that's just the way time goes sometimes. So, Willie, I think we all remember the way last season ended for the Yankees. You have mm-hmm. in, in the top of the ninth inning, you have the, one of the most dramatic home runs probably in the last decade by a Yankees player from DJ LeMahieu, and you have that rush of emotions, and then it's gone like 20 minutes later when Altuve hits the home run. I'm wondering if you can put yourself back in the dugout during Game 7 in 2006 on the emotion swing from the catch that Andy Chavez made and then just uh-huh. you know the way it all went down at the end. Just I mean, what's that like hour of your life like? Oh, man, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. It's so vivid. Even to this day, it's so vivid in my mind. I remember when, when Andy Chavez 
made one of the most unbelievable catches I've ever seen. He jumped over that wall and made a tremendous catch. I remember turning to my, my, my coaches and I said, boys, we're going to the show. We are going to the World Series. Are you kidding me right now? He caught that ball and I'm like, wow, I felt so good about it. You couldn't tell me, Bucky, that, I, that we weren't going, okay? And then all of a sudden, you could just feel that, that, that thing in your stomach where when Yadi and Molina was up, you know, sometimes, Bucky, when you manage, you have that weird feeling, that gut feeling, but yep. it doesn't feel good. And you want to just say, go away, get out of my mind. You know, it's almost like you try to brainwash yourself and not feeling that. But my instincts have always been so good about the game, almost scary, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, don't hang him, a, a, a change up or whatever you do. And I remember Yachty, he, he struggled in that series. And it's almost like you feel, you know what, this guy, the worm's going to turn. But, but, not, but not now. Wait, wait till we leave town. And, and But I just had a weird feeling about it. And when he hit that ball, all I did was close my eyes and I just thought I would open them and that would be a dream. I really thought that. I really I really <laughs> felt like you got to be kidding me right now. There's no way in the world. But I remember that 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 time when it was kind of coming to a fever pitch. You know, you can almost taste it. You can almost feel like, wow, this is something special going on right now at Old Shea Stadium. And when things are happening, it's happening really, really fast. But I've always been a real confident manager. So everybody in the bench, everybody in the dugout felt like this was our time. So when it happened, it felt like the biggest gut punch you could ever have ever experienced or whatever. And I'm telling you, to this day, I'm not going to lie about it. It still hurts, guys. It still hurts, man. Because Beltran was my best player all year. I mean, you, you could see him at the plate just kind of just waiting on his pitch. I don't know if he was what he was sitting on because, again, that was a full count. But I felt bad for him at the end of the day because, you know, he took a lot of heat for that. And he felt like, I'm sure, the, the, the weight of the city was on his shoulders, but Wayne right through him had, had a laces curveball, and, and he just locked him. I mean, it, it's truly the best pitch I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. No doubt about it. And, and, and you can see Carlos Flinch, that ball started out like a tr- old-fashioned 12 to 6, Bucky, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, and, I love and it. it just, and just fell right in it. And, and, I, and the first thing I felt like, you know, you, you feel devastated, but then I felt like, wow, you got to tip your cap to the, a young kid who's going to probably end up being in the Hall of Fame. I cannot, he was a rookie that year. Remember that? He was a rookie, Brain right? And look yeah. how long he's been around. He's still pitching well, you know? But I just remember that I feel so bad for Carlos because, um, you know, he, he, he carried us most of the year. And, and after I licked my wounds a little bit, I, I, I just gave him a hug and told him much, how much I loved him because I know he felt terrible. But here's the thing. I think we need to get to another Fairly monumental home run in a, that, that happened in both your lives. I know you were hurt at the time, but one thing that keeps kind of coming to my mind is last week or the week before, I don't even remember when, Brett Gardner hit, I think, the, fir- the, the first or second opposite field home run of his life. And you could mm-hmm. tell that on the one hand, you know, all the players are happy and thrilled about the home run. But you could also see them licking their chops like, you know, we can't wait to get on him a little bit for going opposite field here. Right. When Bucky Dent hits that home run in 1978 you know what is the mood of everyone beyond just the elation of like oh my god this is gonna happen now is there just like oh man we're gonna have some fun with bucky now <laughs> you know what I, <laughs> you know we, we wouldn't have fun either way you know either way <laughs> yeah you know but but you know but but bucky was always clutch like that so it, it, you know you don't think that you're going to hit a dramatic, one of the most dramatic homers in Yankee history at the time because we, you know, we were kind of, we weren't punching Judy's Bucky, but, but, you know, we, no. we weren't known for that. But, but the thing that I, even though I was on the bench, you know, we all were, were surprised and shocked because we were elated that, that we were going to, you know, get over this hump. But, I mean, you're at Fenway Park. 
I mean, you know, if the guy makes a mistake or whatever, you take advantage of it. So I just remember just be just total elation. And I, and I remember being in Fenway Park that day. I can almost hear the deafening silence. You know how silent it was, Bucky? When it seemed oh, like man. everybody was shocked. And all you could hear was this little group of guys in the, in the third base line going crazy. And you could just almost yeah. like a hush over the crowd. But I, I just remember jumping out of the dugout. Uh, I had an afro back then. I remember on the picture, I had a little afro going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> but, but, but I really wasn't. I really wasn't totally like, oh, I can't believe it. Because I mean, I played with Bucky for a long time, and he always came up with big hits like that. So it was just at the right time. And uh, I love you, partner. I love you for that. Bro. Yeah, I love you too, brother. And 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 I know, I know that 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 was a tough '78. Was a tough series because you couldn't play, you know. And yeah. I, I felt I felt that same thing in '81, being the eye in the sky, you know. I mean, I set up yeah. there, and you know, you never you never know when you're going to go back. And actually, mm-hmm. after '81. I haven't gone back since, you know. And yeah. at least you got to go. At least you got to go as a coach from '96 yeah. on, and and, yeah, and well, win well, six, yeah, and six of also them. In, also, in 1990, again with the A's, I went back. I had a great series with with the A's that year in 1990. But but you're right about that. You never know when you're going to get back. Uh, and 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 again, it's probably my biggest disappointment as a player not being able to play in that. Because if you remember, you know, going back prior a month or so before that was the Boston Massacre. We went up to Fenway. And we beat them four straight, which really set up this whole thing. I mean, I had probably right. one of the best series. I don't know if you guys can look it up. I had an, a phenomenal four-game set where I was unconscious. And it helped us to set up that, that, that playoff game. Now, if you remember, Buck, that Saturday night we were playing the Indians, okay? Yep. I hit a swinging bunt. I, 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 you know, I had my, my share of infield hits, but I swung the ball. It was a swinging roller. I ran like a bat out of hell. I uh, think the game was tied at the time. I got about three quarters of the way to first base and it felt like somebody took a knife and stuck it in the back of my hamstring. I mean, literally, I felt like somebody stabbed me. I pulled up, but I was able to beat the play by half a step. And I actually ended up tearing it more because I kept running. And so uh, they took me out of the game. Okay, so right now I'm done because I really just ripped my whole hamstring up. Okay, if the next day Rick Waits pitched and he shut us out, I think we beat us. Yep. So if it wasn't, yep. the only thing that got me through that series and, and, and well, your home run got us through it, but but it got me through that was because if it wasn't for us winning that Saturday night before the last game, we might not even have you might not even got that home run, Buck. No, I know, I I, I know that. If, you things, know, and, if things play out the way for the play out, if Rick Waits beats us the next day, we lose that Saturday night, then that game does not happen on Monday. So that's the only thing that got me through that that series, and I was devastated not being able to help you guys. Out. You know, Brian Doyle did a tremendous job of picking me up. But I remember that that the only thing that got me through that was that, you know, Willie, if we didn't win that Saturday night, you know, we might not have gotten there. I'm looking here at a story from 2016 written by, of all people, uh, Mr. Alfred Sanasiri talking about uh, Willie Randolph's performance in that Boston Massacre series when he collected eight hits and six walks in those four games. So not bad. I think at one time in that game, you came up like two or three times before the ninth hitter ever got up for the Red Sox because we got we just kept batting around. If you remember earlier in the year, you know, I tore my hamstring in in California. Don Baylor hit a ball and I'd mm-hmm. never pulled one before and I thought somebody shot me with a gun in the That's back of, in the back like. of the leg. Mm-hmm. And I missed I missed a lot of time because I kept trying to come back and play and I couldn't. So I wound up missing 40 games. So, you know, you don't mess around with hamstrings. No, you don't. And back then, we didn't really go on the disabled list. We would wrap it up when we weren't even quite ready. We would come off the disabled list in 15 days, 16 days, maybe 21 days if you really hurt. But we, would, we wouldn't be 
But since the kids nowadays, they give them an extra month off after they come back from an injury just, just to be on, on precaution. But we, we, we wrapped it up in the ace bandage, put a little Bengay on there, and we played at 90% just to get through it because we depend on each, on each other so much. Padna, you had a you had a tremendous career, man. And I tell you what, you know, from a kid coming up and growing up being a Met fan, you, you're, all your dreams came true. And I can say all mine came true, you know. Yes. And uh, it's just a shame that guys like us are still around and, you know, we really don't even get a chance to, to go coach anymore. Yeah, because there's uh, so much to offer. We have so much to offer. I, I think that's what a lot of these kids are lacking is leadership nowadays. And I think you need some of the – and it's not really old school, new school. I mean, old school. It's experience. That's all it is. It's right. Not old school. It's mm-hmm. it's knowledge. And the same people that made us who we are, they gave it to us. All we want to, as, all we want to do as as lifers, as, as people who love the game of baseball, is to give it to these young kids. And I think that's what's lacking nowadays. They're talented, very talented yep. kids. I work with these kids, but mentally they're not as tough. And 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 if we can kind of you know give them some of that knowledge and and teach them how to be pros on and off the field, I think they would be even better in a lot of ways. But um, but yeah. I hear you, brother. I mean, it, it, uh, we played in a, in a different kind of era, but, um, you know, from, from era to era, from, from decade to decade, it's just still pure baseball. It's just that we have to, again, just kind of come together and kind of, you know, put the so-called new school and old school together. And I think the players benefit from that. I do too. But, you know, you look back, you know, you look back over your career and in and, and those old, crusty old guys that used to play for in the minor leagues. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the George Kissels that I was around in, mm-hmm. in St. Louis and Al Mindchaks and, uh, mm-hmm. and the guys like that, you know, the Yogis, the Elston Howards, you know, the guys. Jimmy that, Reese up in California. Jimmy Reese. Yep. Mm-hmm. Jerry Naren talks about him all the time. Eddie Napoleon, who I coach with yeah. for seven years in, in Texas. You know, I didn't know he was an infield coach because he coached outfield when I was yeah. with him. But, yeah. you know, those are the guys that gave you the, you know, the toughness, the mental toughness and say, hey, you know, put put some dirt on it and go get them, you know. Yeah. But, uh, no, but that's what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, I mean, I think players love listening to that stuff and hearing it and, and, and trying to, to, to incorporate that into their game because, again, Talent is great. I mean, you can have all the talent you want, but but if if you don't really have a, an instinct or, or feel for what you're doing, and and have someone you know who's been in the trenches share those experiences with you, it's not always going to click. Not always going to translate, but a lot of times it will. That is a coach and the manager is what you live for. Championships are great and all that stuff. The wins are great, but when you see a, a young player go to the next level, when you see him really take off. And they come back to you later on and go, hey, hey, Skip, man. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that, man. You know, what you said to me really, you know, resonated, got me over the hump. And I, I, when I talk to general managers when I get a chance to or people in the game, I think that's lacking in the game. And, and, and we need that kind of leadership and that kind of uh, mentorship and uh, players with all the talent they have, it, it will take them to the next level. So that's why I love coaching and giving back because I remember they did the same thing for me. The Willie Stargell before I came to the Yankees, the Thurman Munson, the Roy White, Chris Chamlesses, you know, as I got older, Dave Parker, Bob Watson, the late Bob Watson. All these people were very instrumental in my career. And I, even though I was a decent player, I know I, I was much better because of my relationship with all those teammates. Yeah, they taught you how to be professional. They taught you how to be, you know, professional day in and day out and carry yourself on the field and stuff no like doubt. that. Well, Padna, I, <laughs> I thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. I mean, I've, I I really had uh, so much fun talking baseball with you, you know. We did it for six years, man. We were the best, Bucky. And uh, we were. I thank you guys for having me because 
you know, I, I love talking the game, and we can go on for hours, actually. But uh, thanks, thanks a lot for, for having me on, okay? Love you guys. You bet. You got Thank it, buddy. You, thanks really. a lot, man. I really enjoyed playing with him. He, Like I said earlier, he was the best second baseman I ever played with, and, and I enjoy being around him and, and talking baseball. And uh, he's very enthusiastic, and he loves the game, and he loves to talk it. I keep going back to – you know, the way Willie approaches it as the things he has to offer the players, the things he has to bring to the game, instead of it being that everything with the game today is wrong, in a sense. I really enjoyed listening to the humanity and the sincerity in the way that Willie was just saying that stuff. I think that really came through to me, that some of these guys who complain about the game a lot right now, that they're trying to make, they're just not doing as good a job as I feel like Willie just did it. You know, Willie's a really class class act and, and very savvy. You know, maybe maybe that came from growing up in New York and, and just being a really smart person and uh, managing in, you know, in, you know, what is such a hot kitchen, I guess you could say. But, uh, you know, he's he, he does have some of those same feelings and, and really has a great way of articulating it. I remember when he took over, you know, as a manager of the Mets, and I just thought, boy, you know, this stinks for us, as in the Yankees, because they got a really good manager, and you knew the way he was going to represent that organization, you knew the way he was going to he was going to win. It's sad that he didn't, you know, he didn't get job after job after that, but he was a great manager, and, and, and he's just always been a class act, and, and Bucky, you've known that for a lot longer than I have. Yes, I have. And, I, you know, like you said, you said it all about Willie. I've always loved Willie. He's always been a great class teammate of mine. And I'm so glad we had a chance to talk to him and, and, and pick his brain on, on different things. You know, like I said, you know, we did a lot of things similar. You know, we won championships. You know, we didn't win gold gloves. You know, we managed. We didn't get a chance to manage. But, uh, you know, I, I really always wanted to, you know, hear his side of, of some of those things that, that happened in his career. I'm really just tickled that we had had a chance to talk to him. We tried to get him a couple times earlier, and you know things didn't work out. You know, and and actually, I, what I wanted to ask him about also was the Olympics. You know, coaching and being a part of the Olympic team, you know, U.S. Olympic team. So next time we will have him on, we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Well, Bucky Al, thank you both so much. This was great. Thank you. Got another good one coming up in a couple weeks. For sure. And to all of you, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. Before you go, I just want to tell you a little bit more about the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. If you liked hearing from Bucky today, you should also check out the Yankees Magazine Podcast, where we break down some of our written stories from each new magazine issue and, of course, talk Yankees baseball, a thing we can do now, which is pretty exciting. On the latest episode, we discussed DJ LeMahieu and checked in with MLB.com's Brian Hoke about his observations from the first few weeks. If you're not already subscribed, what are you waiting for? We're available wherever you listen to podcasts or at Yankees.com slash podcast. Leave us a review, leave us a rating, it all really helps. You can even send us your thoughts over email, podcast at Yankees.com. Meanwhile, Yankees Magazine is back in production, and we'd love it if you'd check out our latest issue. You can call 800-GO-YANKS or head over to yankees.com slash publications for more information or to start a new subscription, buy a back issue, maybe even gift one to somebody who's a huge fan. Plus, if you'd like to see our content online, get a taste of it at yankees.com slash magazine. There you'll find our latest features to read from the magazine, including one we just put up about Yankees phenom Jason Dominguez. We're also on Twitter, at Yanks Magazine. Give us a follow and be up to date with every podcast and magazine and story we produce. That's it. See you next time and go Yanks. Hi, this is Jonathan Holder. For more stories like these, subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications 
or by calling 800-GO-YANKS.